podcast, the only book club podcast that does not endorse a lifestyle based on microwavable ramen. Mm. We've lost our sponsors. We're not getting the same endorsement money we used to. <laughs> so we just simply cannot, Amanda, we simply cannot promote that kind of living. Yeah. Uh, fair. Definitely recall some college days, though. Did you ever um, subsist on ramen? Um. I kind of did, but the thing is, is like when I make ramen, it's, I do the spicy ramen and I also typically add things like mandu and dalk and egg to it. So it's actually quite a hearty meal when I cook it. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's ways you can class it up very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, there's that, I would say that's still... I don't know. I guess that still counts. I never found myself going to that as a kind of go-to meal. I, weirdly enough, had my days eating those quick packets in high school. That was a go-to snack. Hmm. So, I don't know. Ran away from those days quickly. If you have no <laughs> idea why we're talking about eating and subsiding on ramen, <laughs> it is because you have found a book club episode. Specifically, this is going to be a part one book club episode on the novel We Are Okay by Nita LaCour. Is it LaCour? LaCour? Did you... I I have been saying liqueur because I think yeah 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 Nina liqueur. <laughs> if this is your first time finding us, thanks for thanks for checking us out. We are again the lightly literary podcast. We're a book club and book discussion podcast. We have Instagram and Facebook accounts you can follow if you want to keep up with us and what we're doing. We post our schedule there and the books we're reading, etc. Um, we are at the Lightly Literary Podcast, all one word. So on Facebook and Instagram, give us a follow. If you found us on a streaming service of some kind, your Apples, your Spotify's, that kind of thing, always a rating and review helps a ton. So, you know, leave a nice note. We appreciate that. Or tell your friends and family, etc., etc. We, as I mentioned, are here to Today to discuss a novel called We Are Okay, which is a young adult novel, I guess about grief and loss and some other things as well, mm-hmm. uh, romance too. Anyway, um, is by Nina LaCour. We'll be discussing and spoiling the first half of that book today. So for us, that is chapters one through ten. So if you are spoiler averse or want to remain so, then go ahead and pause now. Come back when you've caught up through again chapters one through ten. We'll be discussing the book in detail, analyzing whatever we want from that half. And and spoiling it, so that's just a little bit of a warning up top. Anything, Amanda, before we dive into the discussion? I don't think so. Let's get down to it. This has been a pretty quick, slim read, some interesting yeah. moments and bits so far. So yeah, it's been pretty pretty readable. The couple young adult books we've done have had that feeling, so let's, let's dive in. Let's talk about the first couple chapters. This book opens with a bit of loneliness, kind of a lonely scene. Um, are you going with Marin or Marin? I've been saying Marin. Marin, okay. So Marin, uh, who's a college freshman at a New York school, New York State, clearly. It's an isolated rural campus. She's getting ready to spend a winter break on campus alone, which is unusual. She has to get special administrative approval for this. So thanks to whatever million million sub-deans <laughs> approved <laughs> it for her. Um, we don't know why she's alone. We just know that she's preparing for a sad little holiday by herself. She kind of somberly goes through some routines. She her Her 
roommate who seems nice, who also is leaving, of course, uh, leaves her some books on grief and some essays and stuff for her to think about. She does, th- she makes up things for to do during her day, like listen to podcasts and, you know, re- do some stretching or yoga or something. It's kind of, it, it sounds a little too adult or a little too forced or something. Anyway, yeah. she does do some incredibly depressing room dressing as well because her friend, Mabel, an old high school friend, they, they seem like college freshmen, right? By the way, I should ask. I yeah, I think that it is their first year. Yeah, it's like yeah. very recent to high school. Yeah, so she has a high school friend come from across the country, Mabel, to visit her. And so she uh, very awkwardly, you know, tries to decorate her room, then gives up. And then also she arrives and they uncomfortably banter for a bit. Uh, it's a kind of a quiet and, again, lonely sort of opening to this one. Mm-hmm. Nice. Any thoughts that jumped out to you? Um. I think lonely was a really good one and uh, a good way to describe that because what I picked up on as I was reading um, in in particularly the first chapter um, was how the imagery, how the details, the descriptions um, all tied to particular, there were a lot of like motifs that I picked up on that were all, that all emphasized the idea of loss and depression so there's references to like uh edges and taking off the edge of things right she was talking about whiskey Mm -hmm. um which we find out later like why the whiskey was a bad idea for her and Mm -hmm. (laughs) other things and then there's a um lots of imagery with the moon in particular and night and darkness There's, there's just a whole lot of darkness going on throughout this novel Actually, a lot of things happen during the night Um, and these feelings of emptiness and also the actual like space around her is very empty. Um, Not just like her room, but also she's on campus alone. (laughs) It's like empty. There's no nobody there. And also the high contrast of like sound, how sound seems so invasive, like the heater constantly clicking on and off, clicking on and off like the the sounds that seem to just invade her her feelings of depression there and i was just like as i was reading i was like okay that's a lot of stuff that i feel like is going to be something that's played with like throughout the novel and i was just like okay so is it do you think travis specifically do you think that it's a bit too melodramatic or do you think that it's just really good for setting mood and tone or is it too much or is it is it I liked it. Good, yeah. I, I thought paired with yeah, and I thought it was pretty effective. I thought paired with some of the clear mystery building she's attempting though by withholding yeah. things and really waiting to build it really is like a flashback, a story of done by flashback. Mm-hmm. And so I thought paired with that, I could see that reaction. I didn't feel that way. I thought some of the small details were well observed. Mm-hmm. I, I noted the list from earlier about what she wants to do, you know, to make the best of her time. It includes the following on page five. Um, read the New York Times online each morning, buy groceries, make soup, ride the bus to the shopping district slash cafe slash library, read about solitude, meditate, watch documentaries, listen to podcasts, find new music it's just very funny it's a well-observed list uh make soup is a great oddly specific and perfectly coherent 
I don't know, like depression, <laughs> depression food or something. Yeah. I don't even know. I don't even know if I believe that fully because I just love soup in all seasons or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it was just a nice, you know, things where clearly you're trying to be coherent and a thoughtful person in the world, but also it seems forced and kind of unnatural. It also doesn't match with how she's currently spending her time, which is very listlessly aimlessly and kind of annoyed by just like you said the intrusion of things in the world so yeah i thought it was a pretty effective opening it i could see people being frustrated by the withholding nature of it just that it's clearly building up through flashbacks and it's definitely not going to reveal itself very quickly Mm -hmm. but i thought it was like a pretty quiet opening that i i respected i guess I also liked it um, as an opening because I thought that it was really good at just setting, like, telling us a lot about her as a person and what she's, like, kind of currently going through without actually spelling out what causes her grief, necessarily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, as as the novel progresses and, and if it, you know, if it continues to be this, like, oversaturation of... Um, of just depressing images and and just like this feeling of depression along the way without any let up, it might get a bit overwhelming, I think. Definitely. And I do think you noted well, it introduces some pretty key motifs and feelings, images early. The the pool, the idea of water being kind of serene for her, a Mm -hmm. place of relaxation, but then... At some point, she's so jarred by the idea that she has to, you know, come back to her dreadful reality or something. So, right. yeah, no, it gets a lot of those good ideas early in the in the story. And, yeah, I, I don't know. Again, yeah, I kind of appreciated it. It is, it is kind of quiet, and it feels very much – it honestly felt like a college freshman trying to be maybe a bit more coherent – and put together than they, you know, can muster. So it's it's how you end up with a list like that, which is like weirdly aspirational. And I don't know, it almost felt like grand or something. What a grand plan, but yeah, that she's not probably going to adhere too much. So yeah, I did, I did enjoy the opening. Good. Um, so the next couple of chapters, uh, is our, includes our very first flashback. Um, we're introduced to Mary. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're introduced to Marin's grandfather, uh, we're introduced to the loss of her mother, and we're introduced to her life in a California Catholic high school with her best friend, Mabel. We see that Marin's aloneness is not just from the holiday blues or the loss of her grandfather. She does enjoy her alone, t- alone time, and we see that in the flashback, um, but she is still very much supported by loved ones. Back in the present... We're witness to Mabel and Marin's awkward interactions, which are full of loud silences and indications that there might have been more than friendship between the two at the end that has been left unexplored with Marin's grandfather's sudden drowning, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that even at this point in the story, is that even clear that that's what's happened to him? I know we're jumping plot-wise because it's not, that's not revealed until, you know, chapters later. But does it say he drowned? Does it say, I guess it, I actually have no clue now. We know that her mother died, um, I was going to say snowboarding, <laughs> surfing. <laughs> but yeah, I, anyway, I, I suppose I just forgot about that. But, yeah, so I that's think- clear? Yeah, uh, okay. I, I, I imagined that... It that her grandfather also drowned because there was some kind of clue I thought um, when I was reading 
Okay. Um, about no, I believe it. it. Yeah. It's clear he's he's died. You know, yeah. that's the kind of the impetus behind the whole plot that the story withholds. But yeah. um, okay, I just wasn't sure if that whatever details are around it, the story has still held back. Um, yeah. It's implying some things about his life. But anyway, mm-hmm. yeah, I I think this is when the story starts hitting in some structural ways too. On her mental state being embodied by the surroundings. Is there any better setting for such a story than a cold, isolated place <laughs> like upstate yeah. New York in the winter or whatever? It, there, and you, once you start to notice that it's building on the loneliness, isolation, but also just kind of the the in limbo uncertainty of her life that she has really no home. That's how it opens too, right? She's stuck here for vacation. She literally has nowhere to go. This is as good a home as any for her. Mm-hmm. Um, this this started to build that up too. On 43 and 44, we get an incredibly, I don't know if I'd say heavy handed because the novel is not written in any heavy handed ways. It's kind of being a little gentle and observing moments with a little bit of poetry when it can. It's not very, it's not a very didactic book or something. Right. Um, but on 43 and 4, around there, they get stuck in an elevator together, <laughs> which, you know, seems very purposeful, a literal, you know, from here to there movement that they freeze. Mm-hmm. And so that just struck me as a clear moment for them to make it very obvious that it's these are people that don't know where to go with each other, that have some conflict that at this point in the story, too, is so unclear. We just know there's tension that they're not saying very much that for making such a dramatic move, did you ever go across the country to see someone during college like i, I never did <laughs> i visited I did not people have that closer kind of money. than that <laughs> yeah right you you mean your mom was not a famous painter or whatever collage artist <laughs> <No>. <laughs> right we can't all be so lucky but yeah so i just thought that scene was pretty pretty rich i I wasn't sure at the moment, and now thinking back, I'm still not sure if it was maybe a little too obvious. Like she, you know, the dialogue in the elevator is, it's right here. We can press it whenever we want to. So Mabel's trying to kind of tease her emotional state out to see how uh, Marin is feeling and where she's at. And she says, I want to press it now, really? And then she isn't taunting me. It's a real question. Do I really want us to move again so soon? Do I really want to be back on the third floor with her? No, nowhere to go, but back to my room. Nothing waiting there for that wasn't there before. No newfound ease or understanding. Okay, I said, maybe not. And then they get into some talk about you know her grandfather and how they both are grieving and everything. So, yeah, I, it was a conversation that I think worked in a setting that maybe was a bit, a bit, on the nose, but I was okay with it. I'm not sure if you felt the kind of increasing clarity of these like symbols and moments in this part. I hadn't thought about it in that way, but now that you say like it's like a sort of limbo, I was like, God, how did I not pick up on that? Like, <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, that's the some would say that's why we do the podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that works. It's a generous interpretation. Yeah, that's so great. Um, and it, it does fit with with the the shifting dynamic of their friendship as well. So that's yeah, that's a really good one. Um, mm-hmm. I love that. I <laughs> I noticed um, something that uh, I thought was pretty obvious was just the uh, another motif that I picked up on that was introduced in in these chapters, which is the idea of ghosts and hauntings. Um, and I think that this is going to be a really big motif um, for the novel, which uh, we we notice it coming up in in the next few chapters as well. But I, I have a feeling that we're also going to see it in the latter half of the novel, um, which is something that she's going to have to kind of resolve or solve before she can 
take the next steps in her life. Um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, with the idea of the ghosts and the haunting, there's definitely that's when I f- first got the first indication that there is some kind of big revelation that's going to happen about her grandfather and about her life because mm-hmm. there's grief, but there's also like she's just she's just straight up like confused about her grief about her grandfather. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they must not have had some kind of clear ending, which is a nice contrast. The ambiguity of that whole thing, the almost mystery-like nature yeah. of it, it does make for a a decent enough explanation for some of the stilted awkwardness of this dialogue, mm-hmm. which I think, again, in the context of it, maybe there's not enough buildup for the reader to know the things they're going to say are basically all non sequiturs or, or I don't know. They're, it's either too obvious or they're just kind of saying things too pointedly or too obviously and sometimes transitioning awkwardly i guess but it's i think it works when you just know that there there's some unknown unspeakable thing and they're both teasing around it right and so right the elevator scene i guess stood out to me for that reason too because she really does broach it in just such a obvious way and obviously it's not even that successful like they speak briefly about it but then there's no there's still some ledge that she's not gonna jump off yet yeah i think the uh, metaphorically that was a pretty crass <laughs> yeah. uh, way to say it yeah. in a book about people dying all the time um anyway yeah i'll just i'll quickly edit in (laughs) yeah let me edit in another metaphor instead anyways (laughs) yeah the um the awkwardness between marin and mabel um in the present scenes i I think i i quite like it just because it really highlights how disconnected they feel from each other right now and i think that Mm -hmm. highlights um marin's disconnect from her life like just being alive so definitely i think she did a good job with that because like compared to when when marin and mabel in the in the flashback scenes they're like i mean synchronized watches they're just like they work so well together so it's a great contrast i think she's setting up there Definitely. The novel then in chapters five and six returns again to the past as it will continue to do so, these these flashbacks and stuff. And Marin is spending more time with Gramps, so we learn a bit more about him. He has a late-in-life love birdie, though it's unclear how or when they met or anything. We just know that he sends love letters to Birdie. They have a connection. Uh, Marin tries to get a photo from her past out of Gramps as well, but there are literally none. Gramps has really been slacking on the record keeping and parenting here. He is he is her only guardian slash parent because her mom, again, died in a surfing accident, which at this point in the novel is pretty clear, yeah. like five or six, what around there. So there are people on the beach who talk to her and send their condolences and stuff about getting taken up by the ocean. Um unpredictable beast that it is in the present then like back in the current day part of the narrative the two friends venture into town quick side note for you shopping district is what they call it over and over doesn't that feel like something that was put into google translate from a foreign language have you ever (laughs) called it the have you ever said i'm going down to the shopping district no no yeah i don't (laughs) understand i i'm like truly was baffled by this choice of phrase it's so strange. What would we call it? Just like downtown, we would go to downtown the... is what I would say. Yeah. Or you would say the mall if it's a mall. Right. Either you're going, or you would just say to the store or whatever store you're going to. Yeah. You could also just say, I will give her this, the author, I mean, in terms of a naturalistic sounding phrase. I would just say, do you want to go shopping and then maybe name some ideas or something? But district is the thing where it's like, huh, that's just not, <laughs> not a word I would use. Yeah, especially in like a 
big city like that, each district has its own neighborhood name. So, like, when I lived in Seoul in mm-hmm. Korea, like, you, if I wanted to go shopping, I would specifically say the name of the district I wanted to go shopping in because each district had its own, like, little things. Makes sense. So, I would be like, I'm going to Namdaemun. I'm going to Myeongdong. And, and that would be... So you know what direction you're going in. It's, uh, each place has it, a name. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I and agree. It's kind of weird. <laughs> partially the point, too, is this town that this college is in, which they haven't said, right? It's just a small in the upstate New York college. I don't. I, yeah, I don't know. Uh, it felt if like it did, was New I York City it. to me. <laughs> well, the thing is, we know she's not in the city, though, mm-hmm. because of the surroundings. And then also she makes a big point of her roommate, Hannah, is in the city who invi- and she invited her to come back and she hasn't. It, she's in Manhattan so that, know- specifically. So that's another yeah. district within yeah. the city, though. I Yeah, I suppose so. It does make mention of a bus, doesn't mm-hmm. it? But I guess there's buses in small towns. Interesting. That would deeply change how I've been reading this book. I guess I've really maybe misplaced it. Just because of the the shops that they go to a small... I guess they do go to, a, what do they call it, a cafe or a diner? Yeah, there's there's diners. They go to cafes. Interesting, the, the okay. pottery place. Maybe they, yeah, maybe I misread the thing with her roommate then, doing some revisionist reading here right live on the pod. Maybe I'll cut this. <laughs> but no, I I won't. I never do. <laughs> yeah, I never do, <laughs> listeners. I never do cut any of it, even though I, I've threatened it many times. I just, I suppose the whole vibe, um, for some reason, just felt like to me, well, because let me finish the summary quick, but it's, they go for an uncomfortable meal at a diner or cafe of some kind, they they don't know how to eat, they, there's a joke that they're just like sisters now, or she wants to be like sisters, which creates a lot of tension <laughs> between friends, uh, not sure why that would be until later in the book, mm-hmm. and then um, before that, though, and kind of during, Marin is a bit enchanted, there's a small pottery studio that she likes the wares of, she purchases some things there, some gifts and such, and she also asked the proprietor about a part-time job which seems kind of promising she goes back and here's a maybe so that's you know probably the one positive thing in the story thus far right Mm -hmm. (laughs) has there been any other you know good development really yeah so yeah i the number one thing here i think is the diner scene their conversation there i'm not sure if any other parts jumped out obviously the pottery is significant as well for sure but the the line in there in when they're discussing things and eating their meal about having you know being like a sister moving in with her she offers to take marin in and have her come back to almost live with her family it creates a deep sense of discomfort right whatever friendship they've had kind of I don't know. Everybody, it's clearly so changed, right? Everybody's yeah. trying to dodge the conversation. The small moment on page 64 I appreciated again that um, I feel like I'll be praising the book a lot in those terms where it's small things that are subtle but but have a lot of meaning. That When they get onto the bus together, uh, it says, we take halting interrupted steps not knowing how far back we should go or who should duck into a row first. She steps to the side to make me lead as though just because I live here, I know which seat would be right for us. I keep walking until we're out of choices. We sit in the center of the back. So it's... Yeah, it's kind of a poignant little paragraph just showing the absolute disconnect in their friendship. They don't know how to behave around each other. They literally get stuck kind of in the middle. They're forced into it, right? Neither seems to want to decide anything. And again, even though there's offers of, you know, come live with me, or I know you've had a loss, but you can have a sort of family with us, that does not seem to satisfy her much. And she doesn't, you know, Marin doesn't seem to want that. And yeah, just another quick moment where... 
you know, some symbolic importance there. I think it's building up that limbo, that stasis that they're stuck in, um, but not doing it in too intense or heavy a way. Yeah, I like that. And the 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 moving to the very back of the bus and and being kind of stuck in the middle, and then she scooches away from Mabel to look out the windows because she's like yeah. enchanted by how pretty it looks outside. Um, because she's so unfamiliar with really traveling around outside. She she went to the right, shopping right. district to buy her bowls originally. but And we know that she goes out to dinner sometimes because she, she makes mention of that in, in order to highlight that she avoids diners. Um, but, yeah, it she's so disconnected not only from Mabel and her past, but also very disconnected with just her, her present setting as well. It's yeah, yeah. I thought that she did a great job with that. That liqueur did Definitely. a good job with that. Um, I noticed too on page seventy one. Um, do you remember uh, we we read the book? They both die at the end, and one of the mm-hmm. things that yeah. we had pointed out about it was uh, that some of the <clears throat> symbols were were purposefully explained. <laughs> yes, very much so. <laughs> yeah. So on page 71, the very first paragraph on 71, it says, um, they're at the, the diner. Um, she leans over our table and turns the sign in the window so that it says closed on the outside. But on our side, perfectly positioned between Mabel's place and mine, it says open. If this were a short story, it would mean something. Yeah, didn't like that. Definitely <laughs> noticed it as well. I actually marked my, my system for dog-earing pages. I don't know if you have a system. Mm-hmm. Firstly, I've noticed this, by the way, real quick aside. I haven't been writing as much, annotating as much mm-hmm. for some in the last, I don't know, like year or so. I just don't keep the pencil on me as much as I used to. I should need to get back to that. I think, you know why it is, honestly? It's huh. since we do the podcast, I feel like I do my annotations out loud here or something. It's like, uh, I already sense. know I'm going to... It's like I already know I'm going to do them later, so it's yeah. I don't. It feels like double duty. Anyway, to a little note for you, how I'm getting into the books. I always do simple system. If I fold a page uh, corner at the top, it means I like something. Bottom means I did not like something, and that's it's a pretty open ended interpretation of that. Yeah. But I definitely bottom dog eared this page because I was like, <laughs> oh no, I don't don't do that. <laughs> don't go doing that, please, please stop. <laughs> So that was a good. That was my question was, what did you think of that? Um, I noticed very it. YA. <laughs> yeah, very YA. But at the same time, um, I was like, well, OK, maybe she's doing that because she's she's really emphasizing Marin's literary mind. Right. She was originally going to be an English major. Um, yes. Her yeah. past is like scattered with rep- allusions and analyses of uh, different novels. So we've got like, what was it? The turning the turn of the screw. We've got mm-hmm. um, yeah. a, a thousand years of or a hundred years of, of solitude. I don't remember which I've read it before and I, I always get the title mixed up, but the one by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Yeah. hundred years of solitude. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> and, um, and then we also get some like poetry and stuff like that, but she's, she's an English major and she also is just highly analytical anyway, which we see both in the flashbacks and in some of the present day stuff. So I was like, okay, so we didn't like that about, uh, 
the other YA novel that we recently did, but is it is it not so much just trying to real is the author not so much doing the same thing where it's just like really making this symbolism just like really honing in on that and trying to make mm. sure that the readers really pick up on that or is she just trying to really highlight the kind of the the way that Marin herself thinks and analyzes and I, I'm okay with it right it's okay if you have a protagonist the lens through which or through whom, I suppose, you're going to analyze things. I I do agree that some of the illusions later on were working. I just, none of the other narrative has been quite in that same direct meta way. And so just that one, that one detour into that, I just thought didn't, it just would have been great without it. So it's like, why is it, it didn't seem to add much and it only draws attention to something that otherwise should get attention from its significance in, in other ways, right? Right, it's right. Symbols or motif use or, you know, just it's div- whatever language. Yeah, it, the other illusions have felt also maybe heavy handed. So it's not like, I, I just don't begrudge those as clearly. This one just felt too jarring, narratively yeah. jarring. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, I was, I was not... I myself have not quite made up my mind yet. I'm waiting to see if there's another example before I I make up my mind what, what exactly LaCour is trying to do with that. So <laughs> Definitely. We'll <see>. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um <clears throat> so then in the next two chapters, um, we see a lot of art and art analysis. <laughs> in the flashback portion Yeah, <laughs> we see a lot. <laughs> in the flashback portion, Marin and Mabel are going to a friend's party in nearly identical outfits that Mabel's parents find too revealing. Uh, though they only scold Mabel, leaving Marin longing for that kind of relationship with really anyone. She kind of wants Mabel's parents to say something to her, and then she thinks about like how Gramps never really looks at her outfits and she's like whatever um and later at the party another friend points out how weird it is that Marin hasn't been in gramps's back room which makes her question her relationship with him so she's starting to we're starting to get a mystery there in the present day mabel pushes for an answer about moving back to san fran and Marin has a near anxiety attack about it, which is fixed with some in-depth discussion and analysis of a Frida Kahlo painting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'll just go ahead and, and jump in and say that on um, page 89, the last paragraph, I'll read it out loud. Um, sure. This is... Um, an analysis of Mabel's mom's painting. It's like a a multimedia mm-hmm. painting that she did and yeah. included a scrap of um, Marin's dress that she had cut up to make into a T-shirt, essentially. Um, I stared at it, drank my glass of water, and filled it up again. I kept looking for a long time, but I couldn't think of a single thing it might mean. So... I found that interesting considering, well, what we just discussed in the previous um, section, which is like she's yeah. pointing out the meaning of something. And and everything to Marin has meaning. Everything. She's able to like analyze everything. But with this painting, she just can't fathom 
anything. She's just staring at it. And she's like, I don't know what this this painting means, and I don't know what it means to me. And I thought that mm-hmm. was really interesting, and I didn't know what you thought of that. Like, is that a shift in mentality? Do you think that it's, um, uh, like because she's she's so she doesn't know where she stands with Mabel's parents. Is it a reflection of that or I'm not sure. Yeah. I think in terms of how I read it just in the moment as a kind of a functional literary thing, it did because of its unknowability, the darkness of the water, the kind of, I don't know, primal nature of it all. And then we just can't forget. It's funny how the narrative almost makes us forget this, but that's how her mom died. So Mm -hmm. I just think it's all of the things surrounding that grief because she was youngish when it happened and didn't develop a relationship with her totally or deeply, that all of that is always going to be sort of like, well, how do I resolve that, right? It's part of the core of this narrative is clearly unresolved grief, or at least uncategorized, right, unknowable grief. So to me, it kind of read in that sense where it was kind of like, okay, you're getting the same images of, you know, what happened to her mother. And I do like that it also does tie in, though, as you well noted, directly now with, because as we know, her relationship with Mabel is about to become extremely complex as they turn into potential like lovers not just friends and so yeah I like that it also now entangles that with her family I think it just works narratively it's a smart way to do it that it's she doesn't know how to contribute to this family if she's going to be a part of it if they're like sisters if they're lovers now or dating or together however you want to phrase that partner whatever um yeah, so I think I think it worked for me. Also, I will just say, since I can, you brought this comparison back to the previous point. I this did not bug me at all, and I think this is the simple reason why. It's because it's commentating within fiction on a different art form. It doesn't feel as aggressive or obvious to me. It's like when I'm in right. a, when I'm within the bounds of the rules of fiction and in dealing with that part of my brain. Hearing about other art forms feels a little more subtle and gentle to me instead of somebody shaking. It feels more like a shake when they're like, hey, do you remember you're reading a story right now? Like, don't forget, or here's how you should be doing that. I That stuff bugs me. I think this is just way more delicate and just leaves more places to interpret and more. It's just more subtle and know, well done or something. Yeah, I think... Uh I mean, just the the ability for us to have a discussion about it as far as like what it could possibly mean. I think that it makes it a stronger statement than the the previous pointing out the symbolism and not le- leaving it up for us to interpret. <laughs> yeah. Did you think uh, on bottom 85, let's get into some Gramps mystery conspiracy talk, the, Ooh, the conspiracy corner with Gramps, because <laughs> it was probably the first time, despite his kind of. The story quietly unravels or unveils his character, not unravels, hopefully, hopefully not, though, geez, who knows, uh, unravel or unveils his character. And it's being very delicate with it, giving us snippets of him. I think 85 was actually the first time I knew that this is story is build, going to build up something grand around their relationship. Like, it's going to be maybe actually the core of things is however he died, clearly she had not involvement in. I don't think it's going to be that salacious or dumb, frankly. But mm-hmm. I do think that she's going to have some really mixed connections with him and their relationship's not all that good or something anyway. Because mm-hmm. on 85, when her friend kind of Courtney teases her about not seeing his part of the house, she talks about she only wanted to give him privacy. He was old. Old and he was unwell. She says he coughed blood into his handkerchief. He needed rest and quiet. He needed to save his strength. I was only being considerate. It's what anyone would do, but still doubts, doubts. So that's the part when I... She's not only trying to justify her behavior in those small little ways, which is a telling sign that you're 
maybe trying to process or understand something that happened, yeah. maybe giving yourself a little bit of an out. But I also think now that it's, do you like the mystery aspect, I guess, is how I'm trying to phrase this? Like, do you fi- have you found that satisfying to that it's clearly building that up? Uh, yeah, there was actually, so up until this point, it was like two mysteries where the first mystery is like, why is it so awkward between Mabel and Marin? And then we figure Which, out yeah, in the next. We have an answer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so then we've got also like, why is she so, why is she agonizing over Gramps's death? It makes sense to agonize over somebody's death, especially somebody who raised you from, from childhood, but also that she's like, running from it she's not allowing herself to to grieve necessarily she seems to be like trying to stamp out that grief which makes it seem like she's confused about it that there's something going on there so i like the confusion there the ambiguity there um it doesn't Mm -hmm. bother me as much to create like a feeling of suspense over like well what did happen there um because the the story is, I think, just unfolding in a way that where she's she's meant to kind of like wallow and and maybe the the end of the suspense, the end when we find out. I'm I'm assuming we're going to find out at the very end. Um, yeah, what yeah. really happened with Gramps and her and their what their relationship actually was. I think that's that's an important journey for us to also go through because like relationships with people, especially if we can't talk to them about what's going on, it's, it's an important journey for us to kind of go through in life and, and it's important for us to see how she handles it too. So it doesn't bother me as much from, from Mm -hmm. that perspective, I suppose. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think at that point I resigned myself to that being a core element of this. And I, yeah. I think I'm also kind of okay with it because there are scenes – I did think his speech flashback against the nuns about his his kind of angry way to deal with that grief and confronting them. And anyway, I thought that was maybe the only heavy-handed part. It, it's also the only character because it's such a quiet story of people avoiding things. Yeah. It's really the only example of a character just kind of going in and having like a half-page long monologue <laughs> in a way. Yeah. So I just remember thinking like, okay, this is maybe not my favorite part of bit of characterization, but I did understand it and it it wasn't bad, I would say. It just kind of didn't land for me all the way. So mm-hmm. tonally it did feel, yeah, a little strange. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. We move now to the final part of what we've read so far. It'll be chapters nine and 10, which I did not prepare a summary for, but that's okay. I'm going to freestyle <laughs> it here. No problem. <laughs> it's essentially really important stuff happens, basically. Um, the power goes out in the dorms, and so in the present tense, they're definitely in trouble, so to speak. They do not have heat, and they're in a, in a winter snowstorm during Christmas break, holiday break. So anyway, that's not good, but they get rescued, thankfully, in a sense, by the groundskeeper, who's a nice, quiet, unassuming man, and who is clearly setting them up for some sexual tension, because he <laughs> leaves them to sleep in a shared pull-out couch, and gives them a really simple meal. Um, With he's a kind fireplace of intri- going. Yeah, it's awfully so romantic. They, yeah, a little, little heat up the stove, and have some nice noodles, and see what happens let things play out how they may um and then yeah of course then the most important probably chapter of the book so far we've picked a good one to end on coincidentally or a very important one because Mm -hmm. they finally sneak out one night have some whiskey and spend the night on the beach i mean having sex right i mean we don't have to like dance around it like they definitely 
Yeah, I'm pretty sure they had sex, yeah. (laughs) It's pretty reserved, but there's a few lines in there that it's like, it's not like they had a confusing kiss and then had to talk about it later. Like, they had sex on the beach together and woke up together the next morning. So that's, finally, we have some ideas as to why there's this tension and some, some of the silence. Also, we haven't mentioned this yet throughout talking about the book, but it's clear, too, now that Mabel is seeing somebody she's told her about, tried to tell her about him, and so that's another part of the tension, is that Mabel has in college has met someone and is moving on. Um, anything in this section? Do you want to unpack a hundred illusions there, Amanda? Is that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Go for it. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, there is definitely, um, she is an English major, right? Or she was until, um, deciding to change her major to natural sciences. Um, but so, so the authors that we see in the books that we see are Sylvia Plath, and Sexton, The Turn of the Screw, 100 Years of Solitude. Those are the only ones, like, those are the ones that I've noticed anyway. There might be other illusions in there that I didn't pick up on. But all of these authors, all of these works are really depressing (laughs) works. Um, Mm -hmm. Sylvia Plath especially, like, her poetry is, like, dark, right? And Anne Sexton, who was a good friend of hers, her poetry also really dark and both poets suffered from depression in their lifetimes um Mm -hmm. turn of the screw is a really sad story um and it's and it's full of the ghosts and the haunting that's where we first encountered that motif and then a hundred years of solitude which um kinda i don't want to ruin the book for anybody but it's i mean it's Mm -hmm. It's not the most uplifting story about love, so... Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. So, uh, what I was wondering is, like, all these all these illusions that we're seeing. The cab driver, um, after the party in the previous um, chapter groupings, the, the cab driver was saying, like, uh, it, be careful of searching out for depressing ideas and searching out for things that will depress you and her comment not her comment but like her internal conversation with that Maren's mm-hmm. internal conversation with that was that she wasn't reading the books um in order to seek out or to kind of like wallow with depression but because her life is about avoiding sadness and avoiding discussions about that that actually she she hungers for reading things about that because she does not get that in her life even though she's had tragedies in her life yeah yeah um so but at the same time i mean seriously every single thing that we've read every, every illusion that we've encountered has been mm-hmm. the, these dark themes and these dark ideas so i was just wondering like do you think that is the cab driver correct there, or do you think that Marin is her self analysis is correct? Like, what do you? Yeah, it does recall too the earlier conversation she had, where yeah, it's, it's sort of like, do you choose to be that way, or are you just naturally that way, mm-hmm. as you as you kind of alluded to? I think at this point in the book, it's open enough that I'm not even sure I have an answer. It is, I to me, it does feel like just kind of literary. Maybe this is YA heavy handedness coming in, but it does just feel like you should be preparing yourselves for a relationship that is not going to be clear cut, that has some kind of disappointment at the at the end of it. Again. I'm thinking of it in terms of the Gramps angle now, which is still very much up in the air and unresolved. Yeah. But I do feel like there's going to be some kind of disappointment there, some kind of, and you know, 
how did you read the fact that he had no photos of her as a child or didn't like keep memories of like it did to me that into indicated at least a little bit of tension between them that they kind of don't have a sentimental maybe more special bond that they should as kind of parent you know parent daughter relationship but anyway so to me to get back to the illusions it is all just kind of building up not not one of them turned not one of them grabbed my attention more than the others. I guess the Sylvia Plath did. Um, they mentioned the recording that they listened to and her voice wasn't what they expected. So I kind of enjoyed that twist of you can have these connections of grief with people and you can have these emotional bonds that then even with the same person don't stay the same. Cause it's, you know, you read someone's words on the page and then to hear them speak it, you feel differently. And you're like, well, that's not, <laughs> that wasn't the right tone. Or I, I don't like the t- uh, the tone and what is it? Timber of your voice? Timbre? I think it's timbre of your voice. Yeah. And so I enjoyed the Sylvia Plath one maybe the most and thought that kind of twisty nature of it. Sort of, I love reading her with you, but we didn't like hearing from her vibe. Um, mm-hmm. I like the kind of unclarity of that, the, the messiness of it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Quick note, shall we, Amanda? How mm-hmm. did she write sex? Was it good, bad, somewhere in the middle? What are you thinking? We haven't we haven't gone back to this much because somehow we've only chosen sexless works on the pod. <laughs> we, we skew toward, I don't know, other things. But yeah, not many authors we've had have done explicit sex scenes. This is, I would say, as close as we've gotten except for Alice Walker, right? Oh, yeah. She does an amazing job with that. And also, um, Toni Morrison. Well, yeah to, to be fair that yes that is true that i think had so many other thematic things happening that it didn't that didn't grab my attention in quite the, it was not romantic um consensual love making love right, it was right, a different right. it was very yeah it was just so different uh and there have been other you know references to it we could go all the way back to the murakami like we we both you know responded i would say in the negative to the way he did that <laughs> it was not the best part yeah. of that book or something <laughs> um but what did you think then was this it's brief you know which i think to me I don't think it has to be, but I think it helps because the more explicit you try and go, the more difficult it becomes as a just a person of creative writing. It just becomes harder and harder to do, I think, the more yeah. you want to like slow things down and be really explicit. Right. It's just hard to be it's hard to capture that well. It's definitely one of those conundrums. What did you think? Um, it reminded me of um like a movie, just just how you yeah, you yeah. get up to a certain point and then it's the the black screen and then the next morning, right? Um, and mm-hmm. that's yeah. that's how I envisioned it. Like she's uh, it, the scene essentially stops when Mabel has her fingers like at the band of Marin's um, the top of Marin's underwear, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and and then she's like, "Well, we can always blame it on the whiskey in the morning," and then it's like next morning <laughs> uh-huh, so yeah. um it was i wasn't surprised by it because this is meant to be a young adult novel and if there were like explicit um s- sex in here then i feel like there would be an uproar with a lot of parents um yeah well some way it gets away with a lot more than you'd assume oh yeah i mean i know there's i know there's band book controversies i would never try and 
lessen that or what am I saying? Minimize the impact that that can have. Cause obviously we're not, I'm assuming you and I aren't really for banning books our general pod position here doing yeah, the project we're doing. Not, yeah. <laughs> but I think I, from my own experience, I guess I'll only speak from that. You, you sneak a lot more in than not, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, there's a couple of books that become these weird flagpole attention grabbers, but like there was some pretty, boundary pushing stuff in the library that the school I was at because no one is paying attention <laughs> like yeah. there aren't many administrators combing through the stacks to be like I gotta you know pick them all or anyway just just saying yeah well, did you ever read VC Andrews no no I don't know what the who that is <laughs> oh well that's because you, you were never a teenage girl um <laughs> well Andrews. that is true but I'm trying <laughs> <laughs> trying to catch up VC <laughs> Andrews was I mean that's young adult uh, novels, but I mean, that's you ever heard of Flowers in the Attic? Uh, no, no. I, oh I was gosh. thinking of, um, isn't there another pretty acclaimed, explicit yet YA writer with the last name Dressin or Dessin? Something oh. Dressin? I don't that's know. the one that I stood out because I remember a student handed me one of those once and they were just kind of like, Do you think we should be reading this? And it was really explicit, and I was like, I'll leave it up to you. I don't... <laughs> That's a good answer. I'm not weighing in. Yeah, yeah. I'm not it's up to your own morality, please. But yeah. I, I thought oh sorry, what were you saying about that author though? The attic? Oh, she's like I mean, she's really well known. Um okay. and she yeah. I mean, Flowers in the Attic is a, a story about um these kids that are like locked in the attic by their mother and their grandmother and uh so the the sister and the brother have some pretty um pretty sexy oh, steamy scenes there when they hit adolescence mm. at one point yeah and and mm. there's a whole series based on that and so many like that's that's the main one of the main themes of vc andrew's books like and she's written so Interesting. many. <laughs> I'm, again, I'm not going to police the banned books list, nor do I think it should really exist, but I don't know when the right time is to introduce kids to incest themes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. I mean, I know there's probably an age. I don't think it should just be right away. Uh, so anyway, but let other developmental people focus on that. I too <laughs> thought the sex scene was, was fine. I actually thought even was, was good. Here's a quick lesson in contrast for me, though. So it opens with the wet lips, soft tongue, you know, very poetic, not trying to be too heavy. I still think those in terms of just images, it's just, I don't know, it all feels a little too explicit or something or a little too in your face with it. But there were some subtleties. I really enjoyed the joke. And then it says, I felt her smile against my collarbone. They like make a joke about her nun, which obviously they're they're having an encounter, a gay romantic encounter. And so that I, I really liked. And I thought that was a nice little detail, little, I don't know. It felt, that joke felt less invasive than the one about the whiskey at the end or something. Yeah. And there there were those lines and she says, I loved her already. And then it ends with, um, there's that line about like, it already is, you know, we won't regret it tomorrow. It is tomorrow, sort of the... I like the potency of that line because it just acknowledges the depth of her feelings or something. It was like a pretty subtle way to twist the quote. And yeah, I just thought some of those emotional asides in it were effective and opening with those little, the kind of the, just the physical mechanics of it. It, that just doesn't, I don't know. It just doesn't feel correct to me or something for some reason. It feels very medicinal or I don't know, but it, yeah, I thought overall it was like pretty good and well done. I think for the two of us, too, when we read these um, sexual uh, bits and stuff like that, 
if it has an emotional component where there's some analysis about the emotion, the emotional state of the people involved, we really enjoy that. It's the the mechanics, the just making it right. Uh, you know, a, a purely physical thing and nothing else. That's when we're like, meh. <laughs> and even I will say, I know you already kind of gave this line some consideration, but the the underwear line for some reason I also really liked because that feels like a such a threshold thing for a young person or like mm-hmm. you know if you're first having sex or first you know, who, who knows what number of times. But like I thought that was also kind of subtle and like okay yeah it was interesting uh, yeah anyway I overall I thought the scene yeah worked pretty well actually but yeah. it's um, yeah anyway worth pausing at because. We just don't get them often. So here we are. (laughs) Got to make sure we get to those and analyze them with care and caution when we come across one. Any other thoughts on the first half of the book so far before we end with some segments? No, I'm good. Okay, we've got two ending segments planned. Let's do the list first. We know people of the internet, citizens of the internet, (laughs) you love lists. You just do. I love them too. Love making a list. Love serious ones, frivolous ones, all kinds, end of year lists. We're, We're not quite in the end of the year anymore, but... Every time of the year is a good time for a list. So in our part one pods, we're going to start making some fun lists based on the book we've read. For this one, we made a pretty simple top three. I think we'll stick with top three for now. We're each going to talk about our top three details about living with depression. I guess I'll say as a caveat, I know I made this, so I should probably caveat it. I I have never lived with a clinical form of depression or a diagnosed form, but I think I have had depressed episodes in my life like most human uh, people. (laughs) So I just wanted to say that up front. Like I've never... when I say this, when I give my observations of the details I liked, that is my per- point of view, if that, hopefully that made sense. Makes sense, yep. Yeah, okay. So let's go maybe three to one, you know, from the least, your least favorite or, you know, we'll, we'll just build to your favorite, I guess. What's okay. your number three detail? Um, I would say the avoidance of memory triggers. Um, and it's not even triggers yeah. about, like, her grandfather that she's avoiding, but memories mm-hmm. of when she first got to New York when she was dealing with the death of her grandfather those are the avoidances that she has yeah yeah that's a good one my number three is now this is odd for me because I put spending time in cold dark places you know it's a winter set she's lonely I, to me that weather actually brings me great joy I do not like like if I was depressed it would be like tropical you know <laughs> summer I'd be like oh my god it's so hot I'm sweating <laughs> sweating immensely buckets but I do like the idea of it's a good reason to stay inside and kind of lose yourself in the blankets and she opens I know we mentioned the list way earlier in the pod she opens with that notion of just kind of I could do 12 hours in bed today no problem i thought yeah i appreciated that yeah that's i've definitely done that before <laughs> yeah for sure how about your number two <clears throat> um it's uh cutting herself off from those who know her too well specifically yeah. mabel and her parents and trying to make a life a new life with her new kind of friends like hannah's like her roommate but yeah. he's like really her only friend but mm-hmm. the um the cutting oneself off from people is, um, yeah. is a big thing, yeah. Well, and that, that's why she dreads so much in the story that the person coming to see her knows her so well. That's exactly. the dread is kind of like, yeah. you know, but at least she buys her the right foods. That was cute, right? Snacks, yeah, snack that friends. Was sweet. That's, 
It's a good way you know somebody. Mm. Uh, mine is similar. It's avoiding conflict. Like, is there anything better in life than avoiding a problem that you don't want to face? Yeah. <laughs> is there any more? Is there any feeling greater than that, really? Just avoiding it, putting the head in the sand as the, the psychology goes and just doing anything else. So mm-hmm. I, I thought the scene of her, didn't she literally like leave from the hospital or back door at the police station? Isn't that revealed that she, she like Irish goodbyes the the not the funeral but that she am i misremembering the text no yeah that was when um with uh, mabel's parents were waiting for her at the police station that's a level i have never known i would if a person confronted me in person i would not physically run or at least i've never had something in my life that prompted that it would more just be like i would not reach out yeah (laughs) and would so but i thought that was a little bit extreme but i you know Showing the depth of her grief, I guess. Mm-hmm. What's your number one then, Amanda, of uh, top three details about living with depression? Uh, how sparse her life is, specifically her physical, mm. her own physical space, like the lack of mm-hmm. owning really anything of value, no decorations. The only thing that she really has is like uh, her computer and her four bowls uh, yeah. <laughs> and everything yeah. else is just there's nothing. Yeah. Yeah, that's your environment reflects your mind, right? Right. I put one that really just, when it happened in the story, hit me so much in the bone because I feel, not that I feel like I have to do this often, because again, I, I don't find myself being severely depressed often, but I, I feel like this happens sometimes with other things in my life. Uh, deflecting the conversation away from being about you. I I will reveal this because I don't know how many of my friends even listen to this podcast. I know my mom will listen, so now she'll know, but she already knows this. I am a master at this. I have mm-hmm. perfected this. If <laughs> if you're trying to broach a personal thing with me that I don't want to talk about, I will deflect so aggressively away and immediately take something we're talking about and then veer it off to be connected to that but then not about me at the same time <laughs> that so that just when she did that a couple of times it was maybe not so subtle in the story because we're getting her point of view but that one really did that did read very clearly to me i understand that mindset big time yeah i've i have noticed that about you I, I, <laughs> <so>. yep <laughs> it is habitual it is yeah that, that's how i'm living <laughs> so that was by far my number one not even close yeah. not even close Makes sense. all right yeah good times let's uh, end with a final segment then our part ones will basically always end with this we're just going to do a quick thing called please continue make it stop which is self-explanatory we're each going to pick out something just generally that we've liked about the book and we'd like to continue and then one that we would like to stop I'll throw mine out there first for my make it stop. I guess I'll start with the negatives. Yeah. I, the Gramps details. I, I'm, I'm into it now. I'm into the mystery of their relationship. I'm into the conflict that will inevitably come out with them. I just think it's still being a little too withholding. It is suspenseful, I guess. But I do think the flashbacks where he's in it could be a, just a, give me a little bit more of him. And I, I know it's the nature of the relationship. I know he's kind of a quiet guy, but the nun part just felt so extreme. And then from there, we've gotten very little. So I'm just hoping for a little bit more of Gramps. That's my, so I guess it's not make it stop, but I, I just want more, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. A more, more clear picture of Gramps, mm-hmm. um, which I also would love. Um, my make it stop is like, it's kind of a make it stop, but also like I, I appreciate it. <laughs> but my make it stop yeah. is like sometimes I just feel that I'm a little overwhelmed by just how every single thing is tinged with her depression. Like even her flashbacks, like she, there's little comments in there where it's like, 
Ooh, just yeah. sad. And um, so everything, everything, like all of the imagery, all the illusions that we talked about, all the um, discussions, every every aspect of this novel is is just saturated with her. Um, her unhappiness, her depression, and it's just yeah, yeah, it can be a bit overwhelming. Like I have to like take a breather sometimes because it's just like it can be it can be quite a bit. Although I I appreciate it and I and I think that it's important because it's an important aspect of the character. But it's just like whoa, I got to take a breather. <laughs> You're right about the flashbacks too. That's perfectly said. I had kind yeah. of noticed that, but hadn't thought to articulate it. But yes, it's even the scene when they're on the beach together, and that's a, it should be you know revelrous or something. It mm-hmm. even that feels there's like some hesitation in the way it's written or something. Right. It's yeah, yeah. I agree with you completely. My please continue then. We'll end on compliments. I think the flashback amounts though is kind of right. And so this is going to contradict my Gramps thing. I think in general, the way the story has meted out the the backstory to all this, I'm on board with 100%. Mm-hmm. I was annoyed at the start and just thought like, you know, you've made her grief really clear. Can we just get to what happened or who? And then, you know, it, it does reveal the mother's aspect and her death, then the relationship with her friend anyway. So I do think at this point, I'm kind of on board with the pace it's set and the back and forth nature. Um, could be a little heavy at times or heavy handed rather at times. And as long as the Gramps stuff comes together, I think by the end I'll have appreciated it. So I do think at this point I'm rooting it on. <laughs> I do want it to keep balancing these two things because it's, it struck one that works for me. Yeah, I, I like the almost back and forth nature of it. I mean, there's a couple of times mm-hmm. when, when it skips around, but um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, I appreciate that too. I think it's a nice, a nice balance so far. For um, sure. For me, it, for my please continue, it kind of like contradicts what I just said about what I want to make it stop. But I, I do actually okay. really enjoy the descriptions and the setting and, and how it all ties to Marin's uh, character's personality and how it is all a reflection of her emotional state, her mental state. And I think that that's really well done. It's just that it's... Mm overwhelming sometimes <laughs> yeah yeah and it, it maybe in a sense this is is a story like this best suited for ya i, I guess though i could imagine a ya book of this it's more heavy-handed and kind of toing your face with things more mm-hmm. melodramatic which this hasn't quite felt that way to me yeah but it does seem like it because it's a little spare the prose is a little you know put down or uh, kind of stripped down and it's not trying to maybe flourish all the time with (laughs) with literary stuff it does kind of i'm liking the flow of it and it yeah it feels kind of clean or like spare to me which for the grief story uh, you know absent the mystery stuff i've referenced so many times now it does kind of feel like the right tone um if not it's not the most um uh, again, it's it's YA, so as kind of a default setting, we're not exactly trying to unpack the literary mysteries of the universe with a book like this, but mm-hmm. it, I don't know, it does feel kind of right to me, the register. Yeah, I, I think it's very fitting. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And a quiet relationship that is quickly developing, so mm-hmm. we'll see if how that builds. Any final thoughts as we wrap up part one for We Are Okay by Nina LaCour? Uh, nope. Excellent. Yeah, it's been, this is also brisk reading so that we can now lock, lock in YA is like, I kind of cruised through this when I read it. It was, yeah, you, know, you look do. up, you blink and you're like, whoa, I finished. Okay. That was a 70 pages. All right. Yeah. Didn't feel <laughs> like it. 
Yeah, definitely. All right. Yeah. Well, that takes us to the end of part one. We have been, as I mentioned at the start, the Lightly Literary Podcast. We're on Instagram and Facebook, so find us there. All one word, at the Lightly Literary Podcast. Again, rate and review us wherever you are. Five-star ratings all around. Strong, positive reviews, et cetera, et cetera. We thank you very much for that <laughs> and are appreciative of it. And until next time, we'll see you between the pages. <laughs> <laughs>